Hi, everyone. My name is Rayanne Haynes, and I'm your host for An Eloquent Bitch Podcast. I'm a published author, performer, producer, and arts and cultural professional from Edmonton, Alberta, who finds myself living in Edinburgh, Scotland, and who believes fundamentally in the value of hearing and intersectionality of women's voices in the publishing and literary sector. Through one-on-one conversations in this podcast, we'll delve into the nitty-gritty details of being a woman working in writing and publishing in Canada. I interview writers, publishers, agents, editors, and all the roles in between, and tackle questions around social movements, cultural trends, alternative mechanisms for transmission, modern feminism, Canlet, inclusion and representation, and all the details in between that affect how we share intersectional women's voices. But at the end of the day, at the end of asking all those important questions, this podcast is about celebrating the women who are making things happen in the literary world. Today's guest is Aisha Chatterjee. Aisha is the author of two poetry collections, The Clarity of Distance and Bottles and Bones. Her work has appeared in journals across the world and been translated into French, Russian, and Slovene. Chatterjee is past president of the League of Canadian Poets and chair of the League's Feminist Caucus. She is also poetry advisor to Exile Magazine, a Canadian quarterly dedicated to the visual and literary arts. Born and raised in India, Aisha Chatterjee has lived in England, the USA, and Germany, and now calls Toronto home. And I met Aisha at a poetry conference in Newfoundland, and we became fast friends. Um, I deeply admire her poetry and her as a person, and it's an honor to talk with her today. So welcome, Aisha. Hi, thank you. It's an honor to to talk to you today. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited about the conversation. Um, And when I was, um, you know, deciding that I wanted to do this podcast, uh, I knew immediately that you were um, the woman that I wanted to, you know, have a conversation with, because I really value uh, your voice and a lot of the things that you've done and a lot of the things that we've talked about um, through our various times together. But I think maybe to get us started, I will just ask you to tell everybody a little bit about your history and how you came to be a writer. Um, right. Um, it kind of confuses people when I tell them, but it, because it's sort of, it, 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 I feel like I have a really convoluted history, although it probably isn't, but I'm Indian. Um, I still hold an Indian passport. I, I was born and raised in, uh, Calcutta. Um, I still call it Calcutta, although the, the, the name these days is, is, uh, Kolkata. Um, oh. so I think you can instantly sort of tell what, part of Calcutta's history I'm from almost <laughs> um, and um, I, well, I lived in in England for a couple of years when I was four. Uh, my dad was sort of uh, transferred there for two years when I was four so it's where I learnt English uh, it's where I learned to speak read and write it and it, it's why I, I have a, a an odd accent still I guess because I never really lost it um, but yeah, mostly India, and then I studied in the States um, after, after high school, so I got my degree from, uh, from Smith College in Massachusetts, oh, wow. which, is, um, which is actually Sylvia Platt's um, alma mater, which is sort of cool. Um, That's and I studied cool. English and German, and uh, in my third year at Smith, um, I, went, I, I studied... Um, in Hamburg, they have a, a, a program. They, they encourage their students to study, spend one year uh, studying abroad, and they have a program at the University of Hamburg. And um, so I ended up studying there for a year. That was amazing. It was really a, 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 the coolest year, I think, to be there because it was 1989, 1990, and um, that was when the wall came down. So oh, we'd wow. been it was amazing. We'd just been talking about how East and West Germany would never be united. It just wouldn't happen because of all the political stuff that was going on. And we go there two months later, the wall is down. And it was, you know, I was, I was there while history was being made. It's, it's, it's incredible. And even back then at the age of, um, I guess I was 21 or something, I, you kind of know that you're, you're, you're a part of something that you would be reading about yeah. 20 years later. 
so yeah. it was um so that was special um yeah then back to smith graduated and found myself back in germany working um and i met my husband there um and he is canadian of indian heritage but he had, his stepdad was was german which is why he was there <laughs> um and we ended up being there for 18 years <laughs> oh wow so um, but I really, really needed to write. I needed to be able to make, a, you know, to actually get my work published. And it's very difficult to do that um, if you're not in a country that actually publishes in English. And obviously mm-hmm. Germany wasn't. And so I sort of poked and prodded at, at my husband and said, we've got to go somewhere where we can, where I can actually publish or at least work on that. And he said, well, if we're going anywhere, I'm going home. So I'm like, okay. And that was how we came to Toronto. Um, oh, that's very interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I think I was under the impression that you came to Toronto uh, because of his work. But, okay, well, then let's maybe let's talk a little bit about that idea of identity. Um, so the clarity of distance is is described as a work of place, identity and belonging. Um, yeah. And it's written in sparse language and often uses metaphors uh, drawn from both Eastern and Western sources. Yeah, I mean, as someone who has lived across the world, really, and who has this, um, you know, this this complex relationship with identity, how how does that sit within your writing? It's everything that I write is is trying to explore all of those questions. Who am I really and where do I belong? And this language that I'm writing in, mm-hmm. uh, how much, you know, how, how do I write it? How do I use it? I think it's the only language I speak perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it is not the language of the place I come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has always made it a little bit difficult for me to figure out you know I've always had to be very careful when you know growing up we were taught British English but it had to be written in a very particular way otherwise it was incorrect and I've since learned you know the Indians speak English in lots of different ways um, it's it's our first language but it is it it it's uh, we express ourselves um, in in sort of idioms which may not necessarily be uh, what the British would call the Queen's English, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's still it's still right. It's our it we've sort of taken it on, and it's our language now. Yeah. But it has taken me decades to figure that out. So uh, yeah, I think it's it's uh, like Salman Rushdie. I think said once, you know, he's chutneyfied the Queen's English, and that's exactly right. It's what James Joyce does with uh, with English in, in Ireland. He takes it and he makes it his own, and um, and that's something that I kind of uh, work on all the time, and I'm very conscious of. Um, it was also interesting writing um, in, in Germany because most of my friends spoke German and most of all my work life was in German. And then, uh, you know, everything around you is, is, is non-English. And so you sort of, you, 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 I found myself translating from German into English at some point. Um, and that makes things very interesting as well, because then you start, your English is a little bit warped. (laughs) So um, it can be both freeing because you're not around people saying this, using the same expressions all the time. So, right. But on the other hand, you have to make, you have to be careful that you're not um, using the language incorrectly, completely incorrectly as well. So that, that was an interesting phase as well. Right. Um, So, yeah. Uh, And the idea of belonging, you know, you, 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 um, the thing about writing, the thing about speaking English even in India is um, there aren't that many people. There's a whole section of society which speaks English um, at home and doesn't speak the, the, the mother tongue or the vernacular very well. But that instantly makes you an outsider. Oh, 
so you're an outsider in your own country, right? Because uh, most other people, they, they, they'll look at me and people will look at me like, you're Bengali. How do you not speak Bengali? That's peculiar. And when I speak Bengali, I speak it with a, with a very strong accent. And that's even more peculiar because I didn't grow up somewhere else. I grew up there. I'm, 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 I'm in Calcutta. <laughs> how, how strange is that, you know? <laughs> so there's always been that, um, that feeling of being um, not quite belonging. Yeah. Um, but there are tons of people who are like that. You know, a lot of people in my school are like that as well. Um, I had a conversation with my sister, I think, um, last year maybe. Uh, she lives in Bangalore, which is in the south of India. Um, her ha- husband is not Bengali and he speaks a different, uh, a different language. Mm-hmm. And so their daughter is, gonna sp- is growing up not speaking anything but English either because that is the common language. It's, it's, India is, is such a, it's a subcontinent in, in the end. It's about as big as Europe. It's like yeah. a German and a Swede or a German and a Portuguese or, a, you know, uh, so there's got to be something in common and that's the one thing that's... <laughs> <laughs> that works. So, um, yeah, it, it, it has always been in my writing. And the other thing um, that I used to have to try and deal with, especially as a child, um, coming back from England, I was six when we came back from England. And those were possibly the two happiest years of my early childhood. They really were. It's just, I, I loved it there. And mm-hmm. I didn't really want to be back in India. Um, and I went from a co-ed school to a, to an Irish Catholic convent school run by nuns, <laughs> Jesuit nuns. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah. Um, writing. So I would have this, have, you know, I'd have, I'd be, I'd be, I'd, I wrote, I, I was, I, I started writing, I think from when I was seven or eight, mm. but I would write short stories. Um, and I never used, I never used names. It was always just the pronoun. It was always I or she it was, I, I don't, I think that was it. I didn't use any others, but I never had names because I couldn't use English names because that didn't work for me. I wasn't English. I knew it. But I also couldn't really use Indian names because there was a certain connotation around using an Indian name that didn't really work for me. So that, there, that, that was that whole thing. I got just kind of did away with it by just using a pronoun and then you could figure it out yourself. Right. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. And it's possible that that's why I still write in the first person uh, in a lot of the poems. Yeah, yeah. I'll leave it out entirely. I find that very interesting. I mean, I, I choose to, to often not use names, but for entirely different reasons. So the idea of it having to be, you know, having that reflection is really interesting. Yeah. Um, um, your, your second book or your next book is uh, called Bottles and Bones. Mm-hmm. I love the title. Um, I love both the titles, but um Many of the poems in in that book are about perfume and about the sense of smell or the lack thereof, which is what a unique thing, a theme. Um, And there are poems that take their cue from the botanicals that go into perfumes and the myths that are associated with those botanicals and and so on and so forth. Um, And uh, the one poem, um, Sulfur Sun, so that was published in the Rusty Took, and I read that, and I was really drawn to that. But you know, there's a couple of lines in there that that talk about um, a final destination, beauty, and then this one: some incidents may or may not have happened. Families are like that. Wow. Um, so my question, I guess, is how much do you associate scent uh, with poetry or family? And, and then do you find yourself drawn to certain scents when you, when you're writing? Um, so I, I think I can now confess this. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, well, the, this, the, a lot of perfume is, I associate perfume with my mother. You know, oh, wow. she loved perfume. I mean, she had like bottles of perfume in the fridge because apparently it helps to keep, keep the fragrance 
uh, fresh longer if oh. you have it at a certain temperature. And she loved it. Her favorite perfume was uh, Chanel Number no. Five, um, but you could get her any perfume. She'd love it. Um, she used to drive my dad crazy because she would take his aftershaves and she would <laughs> spray it all over the, the sofas and the rooms. And he was like, but that's my aftershave. <laughs> and they'd be oh, half beautiful memory. <laughs> so, um, and in a way, I think when I, when I was writing some of those poems, I knew that she, my mom wasn't well for a long time. And I think it was a way of holding on to her. So there's that. But I also think uh, just, oh, and the other thing you should know is that I don't have a very developed sense of smell, which is why it's particularly strange to, for me to be writing that. I just love perfumes anyway. But, um, and, I, and I think you do. I mean, you, 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 I think everybody does that. Um, associate specific scent or specific smells with um, places or memories or points in time and yeah that that in a concept is interesting to me too yeah I think it's a really interesting concept and but I love the idea of I just love the idea of the book being I mean of being about those scents and that perfume and having those wonderful memories around your mother how beautiful um so I would, I also want, the other thing that, I, sorry, I'm interrupting yeah, you, but no, I did ahead. want to say about the, about Bottles and Bones and the idea of perfume is it started with one poem that was Fougere, but, mm. and I was sort of reading about what it, what it meant. And it's a family of, of perfumes, but it also is French for fern. Oh, um, and that that was interesting to me. But at, once you start to read about the terminology in perfume, um, it it uses um, terms that are also used in music. So it talks about the notes and the chords, right? Um, you know, and things like that. And that was interesting to me too, because I love music, and so the idea of the the a sense of smell and this, and sound being sort of interconnected where, where, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if I actually wrote about any of that, but that was interesting to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, how poignant, right? Scent and sound and, and music and poetry are all yep. so connected. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm going to ask you now to, to read a poem for us. I, I just found this poem so incredible. I, I, Love it so much. I'm so drawn to it. The language is stunning. Um, and I'm going to have you read this poem and then I'm going to, and then I'm going to ask you a question about it. And that will kind of feed into the next part of our, of our conversation. Yes. It's, it's butterfly weed. Um, and it's from the clarity of distance. It's actually the first poem in uh, the clarity of distance. Um, and here goes. In the middle of a conversation between two people I had never met, I stood up and I stopped a train of thought dead in its tracks. That's just the way it is with chigger flower addiction, with butterfly love. You forget you're not quite like the rest. And suddenly they're thinking, what is she, a queen, a monarch, just a soldier girl? You can see it in their eyes there it is spreading like a shadow map of blood petals across the radio waves the room the pixelated newsprint i stood up and interrupted a conversation i didn't even understand and it changed everything yeah the ending of that is very poignant i feel and really um just hits someone in the gut where it hits me in the gut. Um, Yeah. Thank you. So, I mean, I read this and I hear you reading this and, and I'm reading this as being about a poem about someone who is seen as the other. Yeah. Yeah. So if we talk about the poem and we talk about the fact that you've lived in, in all of these places Um, is there a point or do you feel like you have through your writing or through, you know, even just your being 
finding yourself less focused on the other? Or is that still a large part of how you see yourself within the writing or how you write about yourself within the context of, of being this person who has lived in so many places in the world? Um, do you mean that I, that I, I see myself less as being other? Is, is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, has it changed? How, how I write? Yeah. That's a very good question. Um, it, I, it probably has. Um, when I wrote Butterfly Weed, I wrote this in Germany. So the, the Clarity of Distance was written in, um, it was written partly in Germany and partly in Toronto. And I think, I can't remember exactly when I wrote it, but it's, it's sort of at that point of time, um, I fit into where I was. I spoke the language absolutely fluent, fluently, almost without an accent. And I had friends there and everything, but I was still not quite part of that society. And, and, and it was fine. You know, I'd always get asked where I was from. Um, which is fair because, you know, if I were, in, if, if, if you have a German in India, they're going to be asked where they're from, no matter how long they've lived there. Right. Yeah. And I think that was very much in, in my thoughts. And I think, but in, in, in Toronto, which is such a diverse city and it's a city of immigrants, really. Um, it is, I'm much more comfortable in my skin, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um and it, and I think my writing is less far. It's it, it it is less about it. But on the other hand, the other thing that happens though when you've lived in so many places is that you have um, you have memories and ways of looking at life which nobody else does. Mm. Um, it 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 it's sort of hard to explain this exactly, but. You, when you grow up in one country or in one place and you live there, you, there are things that you know about the country automatically. There are, there are things that you can talk about to other people about, you know, and that stops when you move away because then you come back and you look, you see things differently. And so your viewpoints are different, but the, 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 because I've done this so many times, I have very unique ways of looking at the world and very unique memories. I don't have anybody who has the same set of memories as I do. No. That makes sense, right? And, and that, uh, in a way, uh, you end up being in your own country. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, because you have lived in one, two, three, four, five countries yes. in your yeah. life and not yeah. just for short stints, but for memory-making times. Yes, um mm. and so I, I i feel like i will just I, it's it's i I've, i figure it's probably like uh kids of in diplomatic families who travel when they get you know and from every three years you're somewhere else um you kind of get used to not really actually completely being a part of wherever you are that crops up every once in a while i think yeah for sure it, it's sort of interesting yeah. Um, that really leads me to kind of talk about our the next part of this. And I mean, when I look at this podcast and these conversations, I, I want, I'm hoping that I'm looking at it through an, an intersectional lens, right? Yeah. Um, and so for me, intersectionality is uh, like a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combined to create unique um, modes of, of discrimination and of privilege. Um, And so I think for someone uh, like yourself who has lived in so many different places and has, I'm sure experienced both those layers of privilege and discrimination. um, And then as a writer being involved in all of that, what would you say are some of the differences you notice in Canadian publishing or in how Canadian publishers highlight diverse voices and stories compared to elsewhere in the world? So um, I'm not really sure that I would, I know how to answer that. Because okay. I, um, I, I um, don't really, I don't, 
know how to compare countries mm-hmm. between one another, I think, because they are completely separate in how they view things. C- Canada's history and, and perspective is completely different from, say, Germany or the UK, C- completely different set of um, challenges, perhaps. And, uh, and well, yes, history as well. Um, Germany is completely and and I and when I was living in in Germany it was I didn't have anything to do with publishing at all the first time I got published you know my 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 first book was published in in Canada so um in Germany I was I I was working in um in supply chain management in a completely corporate world like nothing to do with publishing whatsoever I didn't really know very many people in in the arts uh arts world either so it was a completely from the outside and um and so i read german literature and it, I, i think i was focused more on the on the film really than the literature and that was sort of interesting to see particularly the turkish german film uh, uh sort of industry the uk i think i i really was sort of looking I, i'm more interested in actually finding good literature and uh, and i i don't um consciously look for diversity i just want to, i'm interested in different cultures and so i get impatient if it's like monolithic uh, yes and so that's what i look for um but i don't do it consciously i guess um i have noticed in canada that it has changed in terms of poetry i've been obviously over the last uh many years because of the connection uh, to um the league of, of canadian poets um where i i feel i'm still learning about canadian poetry really but i've seen the change in uh the kind of poetry that is rising up to the top and is being um highlighted which is you know and and that is far more diverse than it was when i started out it was very frustrating initially trying to even find places that had poetry readings and in in Toronto and I'd walk into a to a, a a a reading venue and it looked like I could have been in Germany I was the only person mm-hmm. not you know which was weird to me it, I I felt like fiction was further along than than poetry was it's a purely perspective I have no idea if it's true but that's how it looked yeah. um and that's certainly changed and that's deeply encouraging Yeah, I think it's deeply encouraging. I mean, I've seen just yeah. even in my, you know, short kind of 9-year window into the poetry yeah. world, I've seen the change um and the growth of of um diversity and 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 voices in yeah. in publishing. I'm encouraged by that. Yes. Um, yeah. Um so you you were uh past or you were chair of the League of Poets. You're now past chair and you are now um uh chair of the feminist caucus That's which right. is fabulous um and you and i have had you know many conversations around <laughs> around the caucus and um you know abro- around broadening the framework of what mm-hmm. the caucus can do um i'm really um excited about that and you know one of those things is to look at diversity inclusion when we're talking about gender right not just yes. feminist. So um what does intersectional feminism look like to you uh you know in the framework of that caucus? Um okay, I sort of have, I've been thinking about that. I I get a little um overawed by that the term because yeah. it I ha- it I didn't even know what the word meant. <laughs> Intersectionality until last year I had to look it up and uh, you know I I felt sort of a little bit ignorant and I had to pretend that I didn't I knew what everybody was talking about. <laughs> But it's a very new term. It is. It's a super new term. Yeah. <laughs> But it of course it makes complete sense. So I'm just going to say what I what I think what I I understand it to be. Intersectionality is essentially it's a framework um to which which um talks about the ways in which various ways of 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 discrimination overlap especially with marginalized groups um such as you know whether whether it's uh, sexism or um classism or racism there are lots of uh points at which these groups 
and uh, sort of connect um, in the ways that they are uh, discriminated against. Um, I f- and feminism. See that that's another. We had a sort of a discussion about that as well. And I I have had a I have trouble with the term p- feminism in the mm-hmm. sense that I feel like I almost don't. I'm not I'm not included in it because it's a more Western term. Mm-hmm. If you talk about women's rights, then I'm right there. Feminism is I step back, and that's entirely because I I grew up in India, and for me it was fascinating and very inspiring. But it was a whole other world because it's all Gloria Steinem and, right. you know, um, all, all of that, which is fabulous. But uh, what's that got to do with me in India? <laughs> um, and for that reason, um, I, 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 if you ask me about women's rights, I can, I, that makes that I can connect to on, on a different level. Um, what does it mean to, to me in terms of the caucus? I think there are so many ways in which we need to be inclusive and we need to know what lots what 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 many segments of of of, of society need and they're not giving voice to um and I don't think we're we're doing that yet um and so for for the the way that the caucus very slowly is going about it is we're having discussions about having groups um that may want to meet to talk um to to just to make it possible for them to do that and it isn't necessarily women i mean women of um uh, or or poets who identify as women which isn't an even broader yes uh, Sub, you know, a section of society. Um, so it's South Asian women, or uh, Black, or um, uh, um, LGBTQ um, plus. Um, there are lots of different groups who have different concerns or different things that they want to talk about, which may not be an over uh, overarching. Um, you know, can be may not be able to be uh, defined by an overarching caucus and so that's where we're going to start and if we have a, a parallel groups who are able to talk with to, you know within their their um communities um and that we can have them overlap perhaps and see where there are where there are differences and where there are similarities and how one each each of them can support each other that's kind of i think where we're looking okay disabilities that's another one yeah Yeah, that's right. I mean, for me, when I think about intersectionality, um, absolutely, I think we have to to also consider disability as part of that framework Mm -hmm. and um, um, non-binary identifiers, right? I mean, it's it's the whole the whole gamut of it. Um, But I'm very I am very intrigued or interested um, with your. like relationship to even the word feminism versus women's rights. And I think that's so telling, right? Because it always has been seen for ever since I've been a young woman and to know enough that feminism is kind of like this really strong Caucasian woman getting the vote, but it doesn't necessarily have the same connotation for uh, a woman from a different cultural background, right? Who have yeah. often felt like they're left out of that conversation, yes. um, and within within publishing or within um, performance or those kinds of things. So I'm really um, glad that you like voiced that as well, uh, because that is, I think, that has to be a part of the conversation that we have to like acknowledge that even that language that we use is perhaps outdated and doesn't encompass everything that we need it to encompass. So I also have to say, it, you know, the, the, the moment that it struck me was actually at this past, um, I can't remember if it was the, I think it was the AGM of the, the League of Canadian Poets, where it was uh, Bernice um, Huff, I think, mm-hmm. who actually brought that up as an Indigenous uh, person. She doesn't feel that connection to feminism. And that was the moment where, where I realized that she's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have to um, I have to give her credit for that moment of clarity for me. That insight was was all her, um, and it and the, and yes, women's rights. That's it. <laughs> but, 
Um, but speaking of, sorry, um, speaking of, I don't know if you've watched uh, Mrs. America. It's a, um, it's a very new series, and I, I've been watching so many series oh. that I can't even remember what uh, what it's yeah. on. But the it's world of Netflix and pandemic. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of fascinating because it's about um, it's sort of about the seventies um, women's liberation movement. Um, but it's also about mainly about Phyllis uh, Schlafly, who oh. is a very conservative um, activist, and she fought against the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah, I think now that I've I've seen trailers for this, yeah, fascinating, totally fascinating. Um, Does she change how she went? <laughs> no, no, she got. No, she didn't. She is the reason, she's partly the reason why conservative America is the way it is. She fought for housewives to, to, to stay housewives and not get, you know, women to not get equal pay and, and all of that. So foreign to me. <laughs> it is. It's, it's incredible. But yeah. uh, so on one side, you have Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and, um, you know, women like that fighting very, very hard for um women's rights and, yeah. and you've got on the other hand you have uh phyllis schlafly who actually kind of mobilized a lot of women mm. to um to fight against all of that <laughs> yeah so I, the ERA is still not ratified <laughs> i believe <laughs> it's something i'll never i mean it's so strange to me to try and even wrap my head around that right but i guess it's also generational and, and all of those things you, so you're also poetry advisor at Excel exile magazine. Yes, exile. Okay. Um, and so do you in that role talk about diversity, inclusion, intersectionality, and that kind of thing within that advisory position for the, for the magazine and, and you know what that might look like? Um, not yet. <laughs> I, the, the, um, editors, um, of that magazine are very, very aware, um, of how important it is. Um, um, I think my role is really to give suggestions on who to include that it, it's, um, it comes out quarterly, mm-hmm. um, and it's, there's a lot of different uh, genres that are represented in it. Poetry, is, is I think there may be about two or three poets in each um, issue. And so there's, it's a very small percentage that can really be highlighted right. uh, per issue. Um, but they are, they're very attentive and they, they really have their ears open in terms of suggestions. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. encouraging. It is encouraging. I mean, just to kind of go back to what we were talking about before, it does feel like, at least from my perspective, and and um, I think from our conversation from yours, that these things are moving forward. There is momentum where this is more of a natural kind of yes. organic um, process that magazines and, and publishers are at least attempting to be more cognizant of. Yeah, um, and yeah. I think I think Exile has um, has always been extremely interesting to me. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, you know, when I first arrived and I picked up a um, a copy of it, I was interested in it because they also have translations uh-huh. of, uh, of work, and that is is unusual anyway. Um, it is unusual. So um, uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a more global perspective that they, they seem to have always had I believe um, and very open uh, to different genres they they, they um, also have a publishing branch um, oh. for books um, and their publications are super interesting very cutting edge as well okay well now I'm gonna I'm gonna look at them more <laughs> so they're, they're, and they're, they're um, they focus on they've got some uh, really interesting indigenous uh, mm. work as well. So yeah, definitely worth looking into. Okay, cool. Um, speaking of, you know, different work and looking into things, um, what are you, what are you working on now? Is, is the pandemic allowing you to work on things now? 
Um, it is. Can I tell you what I've been really excited about all summer? I mean, it's not me that's been working on it so much because it was work that I've already done. But um, I had last year at the um, actually at the uh, the, the home of the uh, editor of Exile mm-hmm. um, at a fundraiser, I met um, an opera singer. She's uh, Sri Lankan uh, born and raised, and she's uh, Canadian now. Fantastic voice. Her name is Karen Usha. And um, I got to know her there. And uh, she has been working with a Canadian composer uh, whose name is... Um, David Yeager, and he's been working with her on some original compositions, which he's done specifically for her. Mm-hmm. Well, he took a look at some of my poems, and he's now set five, I think, of my poems to music specifically for Karen. So, oh. And we've been sort of, she, well, it's mainly the two of them that have been working on this through the summer. It's just magical. It's the most amazing thing that could have happened to me. <laughs> um, so that, so that, that's kind of a project that's, uh, I think it's ongoing. She's, she's recorded some of it. Um, and it's, a, it's very interesting to me to see because he has, it's, it's, it's operatic, but in a very contemporary way. Um, and you sort of hear what the music sounds like. But then you hear her sing it and she really interprets it and makes it into her own. And so it's a completely different piece of art. And it's, it's, uh, it's quite, quite uh, amazing. I'll send you the link to the YouTube videos if you like. Uh, I would love that. And Aisha, this is a really amazing and I love how our conversation is turning because one of the things that is like foremost in my mind right now is how women's voices and diverse women's voices can be heard because the option of just, you know, having a book printed is so limiting. Um, And especially now, right. I mean, as we know, there's only a few books that ever get published. And and when we talk about women who are from different backgrounds, different cultures, it's even trickier sometimes to get that published. So, you know, part of doing this podcast is about finding different ways of being able to showcase women's voices and having our work out there. So the fact that you're (laughs) just like organically having this incredible moment with this Sri Lankan opera singer and having your work, um, you know, composed with her opera is phenomenal. And she it. has, oh my gosh, I mean, she, it's, uh, to me, it's such a Canadian thing to happen too, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, here I am, uh, very Indian kind of global kind of thing. And then there's Karen with the Sri Lankan Canadian connection. And to me, it was, int- it was, it was fascinating. I was fascinated by the fact that she, um, you know, uh, studied opera while growing up in Sri Lanka. That I I don't know of any any other person who grew up in 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 anywhere within that subcontinent, because there is no opportunity. I mean, who who listens to opera? I mean, you know, there's no there are no performances anywhere in India that I know of. Anyway, I don't. I should ask her that, but I don't think there are in Sri Lanka either. So that. Uh, concept was fascinating to me and she has an incredible voice and uh, personality so and then there's David Yeager who is just amazing he's an ex-CBC producer Um, he used to have a um, a a radio program on I think it was CBC Radio 2 called um... (laughs) 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 he used to have a show So what happens when you turn 50? <laughs> Trust me, I'm, I'm 47. I'm already like there. What was I going to say? <laughs> I can't believe it. So I'm into my time. I used to know it. But anyway, um, so he has a show. He used to have a show which ran uh, for almost two decades, I think, uh, which highlighted um, contemporary Canadian composers. Mm. But you have, so you have a, this this little team of three very different um, 
skills and backgrounds and and talents and yeah. um, it, it, it's very uh, you know so through the pandemic which has been fairly awful yeah. um there has been this spark through the right. summer which is really lovely so that's what's happened sort of through the summer and right now uh i'm working on i think two things there are two things i'm thinking of uh, okay. I, I don't know if i could really call it working on but it's certainly um thinking on at the back of my head so the, in, in Bengal, um, one of the biggest festivals is Durga Puja, which, is, which celebrates our two biggest deities are both goddesses. I love it. Oh, <laughs> These really strong goddesses. And uh, the Durga Puja, is, um, it celebrates, it essentially celebrates the victory of good over evil. And she, this, this goddess is the goddess Durga, who's a warrior goddess who, who defeats this demon who was trying to basically create havoc throughout the world and none of the gods could do anything about it it had to be a woman well (laughs) (laughs) fancy that (laughs) i for i have this thing in my head that i i would really like to write a series of poems about her and it's i i it's it's stories of durga is the um you know the connecting thread Okay. So that's one thing. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, which is, <laughs> which is the other big uh, festival that sort of happens the world over, and that's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and Robert Frost had, a, had a, um, a tradition where he used to write poems, which he would write uh, in his Christmas cards to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a really lovely tradition. Yes. Um, and I love writing Christmas cards to people. It's something we used to do. Um, my mom used to do that when we were kids, and just um, so I've kept that up ever since I left home. And um, so I need to write. I would really like to write a poem for this year's Christmas cards, and that's uh-huh. my that's my other thing. And I think it's going to be about um, about Christmas trees, which are really from before the time of Christmas, and it's all about evergreen trees and about life in the dark midwinter and bringing life into, into the home. So that's beautiful. I would like you to close us out um, with a poem. I I feel like our conversation has been really rich and we could probably talk for hours and hours. I mean, I could (laughs) about this. (laughs) I could too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But why don't I ask you um, to maybe tell us a little bit about this poem, um, Somewhere Borrowed, Somewhere Blue, and then, and then you can close out our, our conversation with the poem. Um, so this poem is from Bottles and Bones. That's the book about, uh, that, that has uh, the theme of perfume running through it. And... I think it touches on a lot of the things that we've sort of talked about, you know, about not really knowing where you're from. Um, and the idea that I, that the, <laughs> the fact that I have, I, I'm not entirely sure if I've lost my sense of smell or if I was just never aware that I had a very, <laughs> a, a weak sense of smell, but it touches on that. And it also touches on language. It's so, it kind of has all of these three elements in it. Um, So let me just just read it. Somewhere borrowed, somewhere blue. I thought I knew where I came from, but I lied. I shift my truth like furniture in a rented house. Cumin, coriander, tuberose. What does it matter if my memory draws blanks? Even perfumers are anosmic. Everywhere I go belongs to other people. I must be careful with my words. They are borrowed currency. Uh. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that, that, that you kind of have a better sense of, of, of what it means for, you know, in, in terms of who I am, um, you know, now that you know a little bit more about how I feel about being in different countries and so on. Yeah. The conversations, these types of conversations do allow us to learn a little bit more about each other and, and who we are and, and you know, that they're not the kind of conversations that you're necessarily having over 
a glass of wine at a conference, right? And yeah, and so, but they're important and I value them and I love that you're willing to have the conversation with me and let, you know, other people listen to the conversation because I think they are vital and important. Um, And I think your poetry is stunning. You You use such stark language uh, to create these really big pictures. Um, and I think not everybody can do that um, the same way that you can. So I, I, uh, I value you being able to share that with everybody tonight. Well, thank you very, very much. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I kind of wish I could interview you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe one of your podcasts can be, you know, me interviewing you instead. Oh, you know what? Let's write that down and potentially mm. make it happen. Oh, now I would be like nervous. See? <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, no, don't be nervous because uh, oh. you're such an interesting person. Oh. You know, um, I think it would be really, really lovely to, to know more about um, your work and how you arrive at it. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm open to that. We'll put it on the books. Great. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> terrific. Okay. Terrific. So I, I, I want to thank you one more time for being here with us and for being a part of this podcast, um, an eloquent bitch podcast, <laughs> um, which I love the name of. I, and, um, I, I appreciate everything that you brought to the conversation this, this afternoon. And, and uh, I look forward to um, hearing what our audience thinks uh, or, you know, how they engage with it. So uh, thanks, everybody, and have a great evening. Great. Thank you so much. Um, it's been wonderful. And I love the name of your podcast, too. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> okay, thank you.